Welcome to a new episode of the Brains, Beliefs and Biases series here on The Innovation Show. It's a great pleasure to welcome today the author of Sort Your Brain Out, Jack Lewis. Before we start into that fantastic episode, I want to thank our sponsors, I boldly transforming the future financial services with a suite of embedded products and services, enabling businesses to manage multiple payment workflows and move funds with ease. You can check out Zai at hellozai.com. Let's sort our brains out. We all know we're capable of more than what we're already accomplishing. But what if we discovered the tools we need to get the most out of our brain and achieve unheard of mental performance? With expert guidance from today's guest, we can discover how to unlock the hidden potential of our brain. Using simple tools and techniques we can use every day, this book will show us how to utilize the principle of neuroplasticity to transform daily life, harness straightforward strategies to learn new behaviors, turn these behaviors into lasting habits and new skills, understand the latest developments in brain enhancement, and create better strategies for team innovation and problem solving. It is a great pleasure to welcome the author of Sort Your Brain Out, Boost Your Performance, Manage Stress, and Achieve More, Dr. Jack Lewis. Welcome to the show. Hello, how you doing? Thanks for having me. It's great to have you on the show, Jack. Really, really, I was telling you before we came on air, absolutely love the book. I was thinking of that quote by Einstein that everything should be simple, but not simpler. And I was like, oh, Jack absolutely nailed all the science, all the background you have and made this very consumable to the layperson. So thank you for that, man. Well, it's all good. But also, you have to share the thanks with Adrian Webster, who basically, in the first edition, took everything I wrote, ripped up and threw away two thirds of it, and then completely rewrote the uh, third that remained. So when I wrote the second edition, all the extra stuff that I put into it, I tried to emulate his voice. Uh, so he set me on the road to begin with. We have a copy up for grabs. Just sign up to the innovationshow.io newsletter. I have a copy up for grabs. It's a fantastic read in its second edition as well, been updated because one of the things is, as you know well, the neuroscience is being updated almost weekly. No, absolutely. There's been a lot coming through. I mean, during the COVID pandemic, to be fair, there was a bit of a dip, like neuroscientists and psychologists tended to publish, you know, get around to publishing the research that had stuck around in their computer hard drives for a long time. They hadn't actually done it yet. But then th there was a bit of a dip. But you're right, in, in general, uh, from one decade to the next, the, the rate of uh, sort of interesting science, neuroscience articles hitting the press has accelerated, that's for sure. There are so many amazing things in the book that we can learn. And I thought we'd throughout today's show, as you do throughout the book, you share these BOPS brain optimization principles. And I thought we'd pepper them throughout the show. But one of the things I thought we'd start with was I'm going to share on the screen here, the brilliant idea you had, which is what you're talking about the amount of connections in the brain, that if you laid them all out, it'd be like a tube map, and then you go and create this brain tube map. So I thought we'd share that on the screen now. And perhaps you just give a quick overview of what this is. Having studied the brain for many, 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 many years, like I was really trying to understand the brain better myself to visualize how it might all fit together. Like essentially, it's 86 billion brain wires, they're all connected to each other via synapses, it tends to be lots of inputs that converge sort of summarized into one output, 
that is then broadcast to a number of different neurons down in the chain. And then that process happens again at the junction with the next neuron and again at the junction with the next neuron. So it's sort of like laying out tracks and then those tracks kind of all converge at certain major junctions, you know, to use the London tube map, a sort of a, a Clapham junction uh, of, of lots and lots of brain areas communicating with each other um, is, you know, so, so the key areas that can get knocked out due to brain injury, uh, it tends to affect those areas where lots and lots of information is coming together at a major junction. So I, I started kind of mulling over how, how can we better understand the brain in terms of getting all this hardcore neuroscience research data and then and then make sense of it you know because it's all well and good doing fmri blobology as people call it to take the mic you know it's just blobs of activity on a brain um but you know you really need to take both views the changes in activity but then also the connectivity that's going on in those different areas so it's sort of like looking at the at the, the activity uh, generated in the gray matter around about, but also think about the white matter convergence of pathways. And I started just mucking around, laying it out on a, on an underground map. And then I saw, I, I, I got, I basically, I started out by making it really, really over elaborate with like mainland trains and underground trains and docklands like railway going through the, through the cerebellum. And then I realized the whole purpose of this thing is to simplify the brain so that people can understand it, whether they have a degree in neuroscience or not. So yeah, it's, it, 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 I found a halfway house for the book, which was sort of not as complicated as would satisfy most neuroscientists, but not so overcomplicated that it leaves uh, normal people behind. I love that you did that. And also because it's difficult to do that because you do incur some type of wrath from some neuroscientist who's like that's oversimplification and you're kind of going but that's the point i want people to be educated here so i loved what you did with that the tube map i thought we'd share in particular two two points on the map one was the amygdala stop and the other is the reward line because they are so important with this book with the workplace with innovation with how we reward ourselves and how we live better lives absolutely yeah so the reward pathway, it sort of lights up when we feel pleasure, which is the reward that we get for doing certain things. And it evolved in order to motivate us to put in the requisite effort to eat when we're hungry, to drink when we're thirsty, to have sex when the opportunity arises. And ultimately, it's sort of in, in, in most mammals, all mammals probably, um, it's fundamentally involved in survival. You know, if we don't eat, and drink for long enough to reach sexual maturity and then have sex with someone, there would be no next generation in, in, in the species. And so, you know, it's thanks to the reward pathway uh, along, alongside many other brain areas, of course, but that, that's what gives us the drive to act. Um, and it also is fundamental to helping us decide. So it's not just about feeling pleasure in the moment that we eat food when we're hungry or in the moment that we drink water when we're thirsty. It's also involved in uh, making decisions between any array of options. Uh, let's say let's say the choice of what we're going to have. If, if, if you're talking about like choosing between a sandwich or some pasta or, I don't know, a chicken cutlet um, with, you know, for your lunch, when you think of those three options, the reward pathway uh, well, the nucleus accumbens in particular, which is one of the three major parts of it, uh, will light up to a degree that kind of correlates with how much you value it. So in this case, it's a, it's predicted value of the predicted reward were you to choose one option over the other in the future. So 
you, you mentioned business. I, I've given this talk uh, dozens of times to a variety of uh, business audiences. Sometimes they're people in the financial industry. Sometimes it's people in, uh, you know, entertainment, television industry, um, even the pharmaceutical industry. Because at the end of the day, if you're involved in in, in some kind of work life that involves convincing other people to reach the right decision, <laughs> if you can understand how they're making decisions, then you have a, a chance to not manipulate them, but influence them, nudge them in the right direction. So, so the reward pathway is sort of one half of that story about how we make decisions in terms of evaluating the plus points of one thing uh, rel in relation to another. And then there's another bunch of brain areas that are involved in um, assessing the likely future negative consequences of choosing one option over another. I love that. And I'd love to come back to that, the idea of the top down and the bottom up. I thought that was a, an amazing metaphor for what happens in organizations when you don't listen to people who are on the ground in the organization and the C-suite makes all the decisions because it's based on past decisions and how they got rewarded for them or not, as the case may be. I never I thought of it that way. That's cool. Yeah, I'd, well, let's let's do it now because we we've opened it up. I I was uh, I was writing about this and I was like kind of going, that is the best metaphor for what actually happens because people get to the top of the organization based on past successes, based on the status quo. Let's be honest, in many cases, keeping it the way it is, and then you have people down in the organization, the audience of this show, in many cases, going. We need to change because this is happening. The environment's changing, etc. And up there in the C-suite, it's like, no, we're not going to do that. But I love the way you described what's actually happening from a perception perspective within the body. It is interesting, isn't it, that our brain is sort of locked away in a dark cave. It can only know what's going on in the outside world through various sensory channels. So the eyes can swivel around and capture the visual information light bouncing off of objects and the ears can uh, get reverberations in airwaves high and low pressure variations and turn those into sounds emanating from around us so those are the primary ways we we perceive the world at a distance and then if you're close enough to touch something you can palpate an object even in the dark with your ears plugged up and you can tell something about what's going on in the world drink from it you get taste sense of smell and so that sensory information coming in, the bottom up, is not always interpreted in the same way because the expectation that you have in terms of all of the multiplicity of different sensory experiences you might encounter in a given environment um, will, will bias your interpretation of those sensory experiences in one direction or another. So, for example, I think in the book I gave the example of um, if, you're, if you're walking through a park at dusk and you hear a scrabbling around in the bushes and you turn and you know in the twilight you can kind of see vague outlines there's foliage in the way and and then you can you can use the spatial information from the visual and acoustic the sounds and the sights to kind of integrate that information to see it better but whatever your sensory apparatus tells you you're seeing if you're in let's say europe you're not going to interpret any signal as that's a lion or a tiger or a rhino because you know top down that you, you could never possibly encounter that kind of stuff in um you know out, outside of uh, a different continent and so well unless you're at the zoo i suppose but we were walking through a park <laughs> and and so yeah so 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 this just 
it, it just sort of hel helps people to understand that sometimes your eyes can lie to you, your ears can lie to you. You can be absolutely convinced that that person said that. But in actual fact, there's a top-down bias that could be involved whereby you bloody hate that person and they've always been mean to you. And so it's exactly the type of thing they would say. But often that sensory information is imprecise. It's slightly ambiguous. So when you get that 50-50 choice, if you don't like them and they've been mean to you in the past, then it's likely to nudge your interpretation towards the negative. Whereas in actual fact, you could possibly uh, watch back an objective recording of what happened, let's say, um, and then you'll realize, oh my gosh, I, I accused them of saying that. And actually they said something that sounds similar, but it's actually the opposite. So you know, when I learned that as a neuroscientist, how how misleading sensory perceptions can be and how you can be absolutely convinced that you saw or heard something. Um, the nature of, of, of sensory perception is such that the, 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 the top down mechanisms can place huge, huge biases uh, uh, and essentially corrupt what you see. And, and the best way to think about it is your sensory information flooding into your brain every second of every day. It's an approximation of what's going on out there in reality. It's not an absolutely faithful reproduction in your brain of the events that took place out there. Um, and, and then if you, gosh, if we go on to then going back to a memory of something that happened long ago and revisiting it and revisiting it, each time you revisit a memory of a sensory event, you have the possibility of overwriting it and overwriting it. So then in the future, when you bring back your memory of that sensory perception, it become it can become more and more and more warped. And Elizabeth Loftus is... is uh, the person who really nailed that down as a psychological phenomenon. It's so important that I, I thought about that from from business, for example, where it's like, well, it's the hot hand fallacy. It's like, well, it worked for us before. So it'll work for us again. But then you're forgetting, well, the environment is totally changed. So it's not going to work. Or, you know, we see it in sport all the time, same, a, a new manager comes in, he brings his backroom staff from the last place. And it's a totally different environment. But they impose that on top of that environment and it doesn't work and then they're going what happened there and then i thought back well that's actually what jack's talking about here because the reward pathway rewarded us for that in the past so that's actually absolutely biasing so much of our decision making i always think of it in terms of when we're kids everything's new you know so we're constantly having to process that novelty we're having to fly by the seat of our pants and work out how to interact with people, how to get through various lessons, how to, you know, rise to various challenges. But then once we get to adulthood, some of these things become set pieces. Well, many of these things, you know, like if you've done something many, many times before, then you can actually start trusting your instincts on what to do. You don't have to scratch your head and think too deeply about it because if you've got lots and lots of experience, your, your reward pathway will have been tracking when it went well, when it went badly, and when it went somewhere in between. And you don't need to be able to recall, let's say that there's 100 occasions where something happened and it worked out well 30 times and badly 30 times and so neither uh, the remaining 40 times. Did I add that up to 100? Yeah, I think I did. Um, <laughs> and um, you don't need to remember the details of every single thing. What you're left with is an impression of the type of things that you did that led to a positive outcome, the type of things you did that, le that led to a negative outcome. And so the reward pathway guides our behavior in, in, in that regard. And so those people who sort of made it to the top of top rung, they made a sequence of decisions in the past. Those decisions led to at least creating a good impression uh, in, in the higher tiers of the organization. Eventually, they rise and rise and rise, let's say, and get, get to the top. But then a lot of time has 
passed since then. So the overall environment in which everything's happening, let's say someone made a load of money rising to the top of a, uh, made a load of money for the company, rising to the top by selling fax machines. Facsimile machines are, you know, occasionally used, but mostly you see it in TV series where people are like, what, you're still using a fax? Like some, some of your listeners, viewers won't even know what a fax machine is, which is fine. It's a thing where you feed a document, a handwritten document or whatever into a device, and then it magically prints off at the other end. Really lame technology by modern standards, but back in the day, it was magic. Now, if that person was top salesperson they took over the company you know because of that and then they they went strong in the 90s because it was a very similar sales environment of you know demonstrate the cool piece of tech and then sell a load of units of whatever the technology is are they necessarily well equipped to steer people into the metaverse in the 2020s no because the decisions that they made that they could make on the basis of instinct were, were were molded, were formed in a world, in an environment, which is fundamentally different from the one that drives business now. It's an internet-based thing. It's a screen-based thing. And by the same token, are people who honed their business acumen in a world of e-commerce, 2D screens, are they, are they the ones who should really be guiding people into the 3D virtual reality world that we're all going to find ourselves in uh, immersed in in the, in the 2020s and i would argue that there is lots of evidence to say just to use this uh, very current passion of mine as an example but that you can come from hollywood as the best film director you'll be rubbish at making vr you, you can be a, an amazing computer game designer for playstation or xbox and you'll be a rubbish vr game because you bring all your crap habits with you that are specifically relevant to looking at something through a screen that you can turn away from at any time, you're not going to have honed the brain pathways that give you good instincts. So you must distrust your instincts and you must work out how to do that. You must train your sensory apparatus and your reward pathway, pathway up on VR-related experiences, on three-dimensional interactions, and not rely on the, the experience you glean during a, a screen-based career so far it's a great point and it's what i what i find about reading about the brain and how our perceptions and our our sight and everything deceives us in many ways is it gives you empathy because a lot of times in change work you're damning of the other person kind of going those damn dinosaurs they're going to kill the company and when you read this kind of stuff you kind of go you know what i need to understand this the i need to have metacognition that you talk about this like a helicopter uh, view of myself but also of others and I thought it was qu quite interesting I was telling my kids last night about how our we create the world in a way through our perceptions and through the information we receive from others and even labeling of colors etc etc and I pulled a little quote here that you might riff on you said the retina at the back of the eye is an extension of your brain we may experience the sensory world as if the sights our brain creates from the light striking the retina is a faithful representation of what's going on out there in the real world, but in actual fact, this is an illusion. All sorts of shortcuts and ingenious neural strategies are used to fill in the gaps wherever the brain does not have enough information to do a decent job of capturing reality as it really is. I thought that was a huge line. I mean, that was really compelling, because 
that's what happens kind of here in the C-suite as well. Is like, going, well, that's the reality as I understood it. It's been imprinted in the brain. Then I grow older in, as an executive in an organization. And then along comes some punk telling me it's all changed and I need to change things. <laughs> My facsimile strategy doesn't work anymore. Damn you, Lewis. And then all of a sudden there's, there's this comp- competition in the company. But understanding that, how the perception doesn't actually mirror reality, it's just perception. I thought that was so, so valuable. I'd love you to expand on this. Credit to you for taking the the metaphor that I use for understanding the brain and applying it to businesses because it, it works in the same way. Each individual neuron in our brain, 86 billion neurons, 86 billion glial cells which support those neurons, those electrical wire-like cells. Um, the neurons are stupid. One neuron is stupid. It's no good on its own. It's the it's it's the interconnected whole, you know, which is which is malleable over the course of a lifetime. You know, the up until the age of five, your brain's producing more and more neurons. At the age of five, you get the maximum number of neurons you're ever going to get. Then from five to you know twelve, you're making as many different synapses between those neurons as possible. But then over the course of adolescence, from thirteen to about twenty-one, twenty-two. The, the cortex thins and thins and thin. you think it's getting bigger as you're getting cleverer, like absorbing information like a sponge. But the outer cortex gets thinner and thinner and thinner. Why? Because you're cutting away the dead wood. The synapses that you don't need are, are taken away. And the ones that are left behind are the ones that are often used. So that's the reason teenagers, uh, kids, you know, learn so, so, so quickly compared to adults. Adults who aren't in the habit of constantly challenging themselves with new things to learn, you know, they, they they perhaps feel that life is busy enough without always having a hobby where you're learning a language or learning a new skill or learning a new piece of computer software or whatever. Um, it feels like it takes forever to learn anything new, you know, if you're not in the habit of regularly doing it throughout your adult life. Um, kids get it for free. It's because once you get once you get that thinning down, that maturation of the cortex is finished across the whole surface of the human brain. From that point on, your your sort of uh, supersized, super accelerated capacity to learn just goes down to sort of normal levels of learning. And <clears throat> again, it's a matter of like if you do something uh, once a week, you're not going to learn as fast as someone who does it every other day. Who's not going to learn as fast as someone who does it every single day? So, so regularly challenging the brain with new things can really help it to um, to, to to stay sort of malleable and flexible and, and and keep being agile in terms of its ability to to relate to, sorry to to respond to the environment which almost by definition is constantly changing from ne- not necessarily from one day to the next but certainly from from one year to the next things fundamentally change let's bring it right back so i jumped way ahead there man sorry about that i'll, I'll do this every so often because it's i i love interconnecting the different parts of the book as well just as the brain is interconnected and going right back to the start, uh, we t- you talked about three aspects that are extremely important to kind of form our realities in a way you tell us when it comes to how our brains connections differentiate on an individual level and an individual performance level from that of, of others, there are three very big influential factors. One is the environments in which we spend most of our time. Two is what we're exposed to in those environments. And three is what our time in those environments is actually spent doing. This actually kind of forms our realities in the first place. And if you think about that as a child, 
and then the schooling you have maybe the teams you play on if you're in sport growing up or the chess club whatever it might be then into the workplace you kind of get molded in a way by these three huge factors absolutely and and it's it's very empowering once you realize this i think it's tremendously empowering and when I give my talks, I do a lot of motivational speaking for businesses. One of the things I always, always, always um, talk about, whether it's about, you know, the main overarching request is we want to deal with unconscious bias or we want to make better decisions or we want to be more creative as an organization. I always mention the uh, study where they got people who wanted to be drivers of London's famous black cabs and they, they took them before they did the knowledge and then they scanned their brain. They After the knowledge, two hours, two hours, two years later, having memorized the whole map of London within six miles of uh, you know the center, the six mile radius of the center, 20,000 major routes, 25,000 landmarks scattered around this massive spaghetti tangle. The process of learning that incredibly complex map that is six mile radius of central London uh, physically changes the brain. And we know that because a part of the brain, the hippocampus, becomes physically larger over the course of every day going out on your moped, memorizing, rehearsing different parts of the map, testing your recall, filling in the gaps in your memory. Slowly but surely, it creates extra and extra and extra and extra synapses. And even though synapses are infinitesimally small individually, when, you get, when you've got millions of new ones, billions of new ones, it actually makes that brain area physically larger. So the important thing to remember is these drivers of London's black cabs, they are adults. They do this not in the era I was talking about earlier, you know, five, five to 13, 13 to 21. No, typically they'll do that incredible memory challenge and change their brain and change their repertoire of skills fundamentally in their 20s or their 30s or 40s. And some even will, will have a change of career later on in life and actually do the knowledge in their 50s. So this was the first absolutely key evidence to prove that in the same person's brain, it can change over the course of a couple of years in response to the environment you put yourself in, i.e. in this case, in, in the cockpit of a cab or in the, you know, on a, on a moped driving around London, uh, what you do in that environment, testing your memory, seeing how well you can recall it, how much you can commit to memory. And then, and then you end up with a different repertoire. So this is, the reason it's empowering is because for free, we get that our brain will, through neuroplasticity, change its capabilities to, to, to match the changing environment, right? But then we can choose what environments we put ourselves in. So if we choose every weekend to go to um, a, a sort of community center and then learn a new craft or whatever, you'll learn how to interact with those new contacts you know which which will for free just by feeling a bit of humanity between two people they don't have to become your best friend just a bit of an exchange of how you're doing da -da -da, seeing someone on a regular basis that, that, that's really good for your physical and mental health because it helps to eliminate feelings of social isolation you don't have to love them you just know they acknowledge your your presence you acknowledge their presence you have a little chit chat and then get on your way in ireland you're brilliant at this my mum always talks about how you know her mother was irish and um uh you know it, it, and my mum's very open and chats to everyone she's like oh people why don't people realize the value of actually interacting you know just having anyway sorry i'm i'm i'm, I'm digressing the point is you will learn a new skill you choose to go to that environment you will learn a new skill it will make your brain it will challenge your brain to to, to, to change its connections in a way that helps you. The, the important thing to remember is your brain 
will change and mold itself to the environment for good and for bad, right? Anything you do regularly, intensely over long periods of time. Screen use, screens aren't good or bad for the brain. Oh, there's my girlfriend. Uh, screen, my fiance now. Screens aren't good or bad for the brain. Um, screens are used badly by many people because the various apps on them lead to regular intensive use over long periods of time, which can actually make, help us to uh, lose the ability to sustain attention on one thing for long periods of time. But we can still use screens in a way that doesn't cause that erosion of, of attention. So we can choose our environments, whether it is a physical environment that's going to nourish us and make us better version of ourselves, but also digital environments that are going to nourish us and make us better version of ourselves. And at the moment, slavish adherence to whatever the demands of social media are is ruining brains. It's ruining brains and it's causing a deterioration in quality of life across the entire globe. No one seems to care, but it's a catastrophe just waiting to happen. Well said, man. Well said. I, I totally agree. And I, I only last night, my, my son was, he's a phone now. And I was saying, do me a favor, though, once a day, when you have that urge to go and check the phone, actively practice not doing it, because you'll build that muscle. You'll, you'll build the opposite muscle as well, the resistance muscle of the, the, dope, the reward line. Don't get on the reward line. There's so many places I could bring this. And one of the things that sparked to mind was some of the things you mentioned there about the impact of an environment or an incident or the nature of the people with which I lived in the past. So a couple of examples, uh, previous shows just connecting the dots here. So we'd ro we'd Robin Dunbar on the show Dunbar's number. Uh, <laughs> and he was he, he did he wrote a book called friends, we did his book called friends, and it was about the social aspect and you dedicate a whole chapter to that social aspect. And I thought when you were saying about that, just having conversations with people, there's a there's a couple of places we could bring that one is, despite what many people say is like, oh, work is not about going to a place, it's about a collective of people. I, I part of me go, yeah, but these chance encounters where you can meet people and bash out ideas and the diversity of thought that that brings is extremely important because that's where a lot of innovation happens at the intersections of everybody's diverse background and environments and what ha what they've done in the environments and the people they've thought about. That's what true diversity is. And it's another thing you talk about in the book. Diversity is absolutely of critical importance, because we can't all have expertise in everything. There's uh, some really good research from my creativity talk, which there's a phenomenon called the, um, the Innovate Project, right? And so it was uh, Eli Lilly, pharmaceutical company. They had a lot of problems, technical problems with their production lines or with their R&D stuff. And so their, their, um, their rivals thought they were nuts because they started an internet uh, site which posted what their problems were and put a bounty up, a reward for helping to solve them. And they were like, wow, why, why would you air your dirty washing like that like that's 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 ridiculous like that's quite embarrassing surely that's going to affect your share value no 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 on the contrary those problems that had been holding back and costing them a lot of money for 10 20 years were ultimately solved by people you know utilizing wisdom of the crowd but with regard to diversity uh what they found was that the chemistry problems 
weren't solved by chemists out there in the greater world. They were solved by physicists. And the physics problems weren't solved by physicists. They were solved by biologists. And the biology problems weren't solved by biologists. They were solved by psychologists. And so the idea is if you can bring in someone who's got a different set of skills, you know, that their toolbox of how they solve problems um, might be very different to your own. And so if you can bring a diversity of different people together, all kind of tr trying to figure out how to solve this problem, what was impossible to one group of people might be effortless for another. And that's just, it's, it's, it's habits of thought, it's ways of approaching a problem, it's ways of dealing with it, ways of perhaps iterating from one version to the next that are different. Um, and, you know, this, this wisdom of the crowd phenomenon. Um, I was saying this only, only earlier today in a meeting. Um, it, just like one neuron is stupid, it's, it's the collection of neurons that makes a brain clever. It's the interactions between them. Uh, wisdom of the crowd if you if you take 100 people and ask them it could be just any people off the street ask them to estimate i don't know the weight of a land rover when you when you get all of the different responses from all those different people uh some of them most of them all of them pretty much all of them will be wildly wrong but when you put them on a distribution and then look for the median the the, the you know put them in rank order and then get the middle uh, suggestion out of 100 people it will be surprisingly accurate you know, and 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 this is, so, so there's two different ways of looking at diversity. There's everyone has something to offer. It doesn't matter whether you're super highly qualified or not. If you ask a large number of people something, then on average, together, collectively, they'll get the right answer. And then there's diversity from the perspective when you get a load of experts who all are top of their game, they can answer each other's intractable questions um, because, you know, individually we're not that bright but put a bunch of humans together and we can achieve awesome things yeah and again back to why the environment and the mixing the people together and i i believe a physical environment for organizations is really important because it's very difficult to do it like this you you don't have the energy sometimes it works because some people feel more comfortable in their own environment but I think you need people together. But anyway, a different thing. Hey, Aiden, Aiden, I'm, I'm with you entirely. In this situation, with a dialogue is fine. We can do that through video conferencing, no problem. As soon as you get a bunch of people, like, okay, so it's a bit rubbish because I am making eye contact with you, but because I'm not looking in the camera, it doesn't feel like I'm making eye contact, right? We, we all know this phenomenon. <laughs> I hate right? that. Yeah, I hate but, that. But, like, eye contact is so fundamentally important to proper human behavior. We don't notice it so much because I'm creating the illusion that we're making eye contact. I'm looking at you in the eyes and I feel like I'm doing that. But if you're looking at my picture, then my eyes are off screen. We are, we are fun. We are so attuned to that kind of thing, right? When we're in person, we get that stuff for free. I'm gesticulating and my hands are constantly disappearing off the side of screen. That wouldn't happen if we were in the room together. You know, video conferencing is rubbish. It's crap. It is no substitute for physical interaction. Virtual reality as can do it. I've got a company called Brain Man VR, and I'm specifically putting people in headsets so that they can complement their remote working with the illusion of being in the same physical space for exactly this reason, right? It's about if you've got more than two people, the, the spontaneity of interactions is, is lost because people mute themselves in order that background sound from one of those 20 different uh, you know, mic feeds does not ruin the overall conversation, but you lose the spontaneity and it's that snappiness. Uh, there's a book called Social Physics. I forgot who wrote it, but they did some analysis showing 
teams that produce really, really good outputs are not those that have one clever bugger who chats and chats and chats and sort of steers the discussion. The teams that come up with the best innovative ideas and the most profitable solutions to problems are ones where each person in that team takes turns sharing information and the others spontaneously give very short like bursts of verbal assent or discord. You know, oh yeah, mm, yeah, mm, those bits. You don't get those bits in a video conference call and you get those bits when you're in person. I wholeheartedly, I know, I think Elon Musk got in trouble uh, a, a few weeks ago for saying that he really wants people back in the office and people who love remote working uh, were not happy with this and he, he was much maligned. And my, my brother's girlfriend talked to me about this, expecting me to get on, you know, jump on with everyone else who was saying, oh, God, how can he suggest that? What an idiot, blah, blah, blah. I, I, I wholeheartedly agree. There is, there is, a, there is a, a, a pandemic of mental health problems that are coming in the, in the, over the course of the 20s that result purely and singularly from remote working and over-reliance on video conferencing and telephone calls and all this kind of stuff. We are human beings. We need to be in the same physical, we need to feel like we're in the same physical space. You can turn to this person, talk to that person. You can turn to this person. Three people can organically decide to move away from the main body of the group, have a private conversation, and then come back over and return. Those in-person meetings are a million times more productive because it enables us to harness the whole of the social brain. We get all of the social cues that our brain is, uh, is constantly on an unconscious level processing and giving us extra information that you cannot get just through verbal exchange. I'm sorry to bang on and be so no. overly passionate about it, but I just it's like watching people, you know, it's like a car crash in slow motion. It's so obvious to me as a neuroscientist that, that what is now like a little uptick in, in 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 mental health issues relating to feelings of social isolation, like people feel disconnected from their teams. They they don't get the chance to like hang out um, at the water cooler or make a cup of coffee and just say, you know that thing that Blubber said in the meeting. Like, do you, do you think they're really annoyed with me? And they go, what are you talking about? We're annoyed with you. It's because they're having a divorce. That's why they were curt with you. You know, you don't get that back channeling of information. You don't get that reassurance. We humans, we worry so much, so hard about things, which actually we shouldn't worry about. And it's only if we reflect and bounce these things off other people that they can reassure us that we're worrying about nothing. People who are socially isolated don't get that reassurance. And so they torture themselves, go round and round in spirals of anxiety and depression. It's like it's through interaction with others that we can mutually reassure each other and we can all like bring ourselves down a bit. And it makes me want to cry that the solution is like, Go back to old school, go to a church, even if you don't believe in God, once a week and just commune with your community. Commune. If you don't commune, you, you're miserable. It's just the way it goes. Yeah, absolutely nailed it, man. It's so, so true. And I totally get what you're, what you're doing with Brain Man VR as well, because that that's so valuable. I think, you know, I'd like to be able to do these in VR where we're sitting in the same room having a chat. And unlike that, you can see, look, he's glancing over there. He's not listening to me, the booger. <laughs> Dude, I just sent you one of these. <laughs> nice. <laughs> nice. My, so my sons, people think I'm nuts. Both my sons, they're 12 and 9, have Oculus. Dude, I can just send, I can literally email you some software that I created. You sideload it onto your Oculus. And then literally, we, 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 Click the button at the same time, and we're both in the same room. High five, have a chat. Let's go wow. bowling. Let's go shooting. I build all this stuff myself because it's. It, 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 it used to be that you know you had to get a games maker to make this kind of stuff in Unity or Unreal Engine, and you needed teams and teams of people. 
virtual reality that there, there's loads of YouTube tutorials. Get your son building. You know, yeah. you need, you need the, it used to cost the, you know, to, to, to use used to be a two grand graphics PC, 500 quid's worth of, you know, gear to, to stick into it. Now, you know, you could get away with like a thousand pound graphics laptop and then the, the, the 400 quid Quest 2 headset and your sons could be building stuff for themselves and that co-creation. So I co-create stuff with my clients. But if, you know, you've probably heard of Suzuki method in violin, the parent and the kid learning together. Right. So the parent is just a little bit ahead of that in their violin lessons compared to the four year old, five year old, six year old kid. And then and then it's the it's the fact that the kid wants to keep up with their parent, that it gives them an opportunity to interact with the parent and get praise from the parent. Like kids like to do things their parents do. And that was all Suzuki realized was was key to turning people into anyone, not just talented ones, but anyone into a talented uh, violinist. And the same thing can go with this. We can we can build screen technology is not good or bad it's what you do with it if you're co-creating fun things it makes you feel like a god you know like you, you, oh let's put a lightning bolt in the sky you just drag and drop a lightning bolt and then replay the game and suddenly you know or, or snow or you know ch change it from midday like literally to change and get a 3d experience from midday to dusk you just twist the sun from there to there and all of the ambient lighting changes. It, it's, it's phenomenally simple to do these things these days. And it's getting easier and easier because of the success of Minecraft and Roblox and all these things. Kids love this stuff. They're naturally drawn to it in, in 2D. So why not like harness that in 3D? And we can all build stuff together. What, why let you know massive tech companies steer the future? We can all be a part of it. Amen, brother. And actually, that, that's precisely why we let them use the oculus and we it's like they bought it themselves out of their communion and confirmation money which we have over here and uh but we let them you know people are kind of going oh i don't know about that and i was kind of going but it's what they're to your point about the screen earlier it's what they're doing with it so they're my older son's building mods so he's building these kind of uh modular parts within the vr world etc and love it you know a few years ago when when Mojang, the creators of Minecraft, was bought, I was like kind of going, I couldn't believe uh, they haven't been made into like a VR, a VR company or Lego bought them. Or uh, so Lego had this chance to kind of get into digital and then actually go VR and you could actually be building Lego worlds literally in a vr world i just i i, I was like on oh, that's kind of short-sighted but anyway sorry about I'm, I'm going off here but but, like, lego did well when they went from just build a static structure to to technic lego you know that was a huge innovation step in the right direction you can do the same stuff uh but even more turbocharged if you're building lego stuff in vr because you know it doesn't matter how good your technic lego set is you're probably not gonna make it launch and hit the moon you know what i mean Exactly. Whereas in VR, you can make it hit Pluto. Yeah. No, I know it's not a planet. So don't, please don't write in and say it's not a planet. <laughs> I didn't say it was a planet. <laughs> but one of the things you, you talked about in, uh, in the book as well, you know, I have a book behind me there, Maxwell Maltz, uh, Cyber Cybernetics. Cyber. Psycho Cybernetics. Psycho Cybernetics, yeah. yeah. Uh, brilliant book. Jeez, man, it's so far ahead of its time. Oh, that, that, that stuff about how he realized that people who were coming in to get um, cosmetic surgery for, for their nose or whatever, and, and then they'd want another surgery, another surgery, and he realized 
it's not about their physical appearance. It's about something else. Like that's such an amazing breakthrough to have. But you know, firstly, but secondly, to broadcast it to the world is cheating him out of business potentially, and that's great honesty. Yeah, and I love the his honesty about it. But you know that you, where you and you talk about this in your book is that well, the brain does not know the difference between what's real and what's imagined. So just like you said you know, oh, why was why, why was Jack Kurt to me there at the you know, is, oh, well, he's going through a diff, tough time. I, I lack that I'll create all these ruminations in my mind of what the problem is, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. And it's the problem is then it sparks a cascade of cortisol down my system, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. And I thought about how that is interrelated here as well. Because in a VR world, you can actually trick yourself the other way and build skills through pathways in your brain that you don't physically have yet, or you might not be in the environment that you could do those skills, like, for example, building, how do, how do I actually, uh, you know, put bricks on top of each other and lay the cement, etc, or learn any other skills as well. Yeah. So I was, I was preparing for my first client, the World Economic Forum. And so I was running various people through this, this team building thing that I built in virtual reality. And exactly to your point, by accident, I cured my brother's girlfriend of her fear of heights. Why? So the, the it's like the experience starts in a house, and then when you come out of that house through the door onto the balcony, it creates the illusion that it's a glass-bottomed balcony, and that you're really, really high above Table Mountain, um, which is right next to uh, Cape Town in South Africa. And so it's a, it's just a, three, a static 360 photograph, but it's like ultra high definition, and it really feels like you're there. And she came out. Was like, oh my god, I can't step out there. This too is horrible. Like it's so high. It's so high. Um, and then she and I was like, look, everything that we might want to do is out here. So you have to come out. And so she was like, okay, I've told myself that I'm not going to let this um, stop me doing things. So I'm going to be brave. I just won't look down. And she 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 teleported out, and we went around. I showed them the film, and we went over to do the next thing, the next thing. One of the team building exercises back inside the house. And then about 15 minutes later, when she came back out again, um, she announced, hey, fellas, I just got some good news. My heart isn't racing anymore. I'm not sweating. I, I can now deal with being really, really high up. And, and, I, and I'm not scared at all. I've, I've absolutely um, acclimatized to it. And so what that is, is exposure therapy. You know, like if someone's got a fear of spiders, someone's got a fear of snakes, exposure therapy generally involves being exposed to an environment in which you get a small, like inoffensive version of the thing you're scared of, like maybe a teeny tiny postage stamp sized picture of a, of a spider, or, or, or let, let's, let's stick to with a snake, a tiny picture of a snake, and then a bigger picture of a snake, and then a toy, a rubbery toy snake, and then like a small real life snake, and then a big boa constrictor that you put around your neck. And then once you can do that, you're no longer scared. Of... But it's expensive to have all of those props. Whereas in virtual reality, it's just pixels. It's just pixels. You can, you can, you know, build them yourself, or you can. Uh, th th there's various uh, online repositories where, for five quid or whatever, five euro, you can you can download um, really photorealistic looking animated snake, and 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 you can do sort of effectively therapy in virtual reality, even without the assistance of any kind of qualified psychological counselor. You know, we could all be building this stuff for ourselves if only we spend our our spare time. Uh, pouring our energies into appropriate hobbies anyone can get involved and and equally you know as as you cured her her fear of heights you can actually 
build skills like one of the things a few years ago i know you 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 do extensive tv journalism you present many different shows and i i was head of innovation for a very brief time in the national broadcaster here in ireland (laughs) i didn't last long for for many reasons one of the one of the ideas i had was so I i had a career in professional sports and i was like you could help children right so for example at the time ireland was kind of coming into a resurgence in in rugby and i was like kind of going imagine and this was very basic this was a they had a magazine called the rte guide which is this guide they give away every they used to sell it make a lot of money from it not so much anymore but i was like what if you gave away the google cardboards with the magazine then you got a sponsor to sponsor what it would be like to be running out onto the pitch to play England in a Six Nations championship for a kid because you would in that moment be planting a seed for so many kids that could go on and actually become sports people in the future. And then I left and I was talking to an investor about this idea and it's kind of like what you're doing with Brain Man Vior. It's like, well, I could, as a professional player, I'm going to go, okay, I'm going out into the Heineken Cup final playing Wasps. I'm playing against these players. I could actually build that match and play it in my mind before I actually play it to build that circuit and actually have a killer of a game, like play awesome in the game. This this is already huge in, in the States for American football. So quarterbacks used to have to watch like, uh, uh, VHS videos, all of the previous games of the opponent they're coming up against the following weekend, and they just watch play after play after play just to understand the likely behaviours of all of the different members of the opposition. Very time-consuming, flat screen TV. You know, even if you have it on a big cinema-sized screen, it's 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 kind of a bit boring, and it's certainly not immersive. And so, what they started doing was sticking a 360 camera um, on the field. Uh, in order to, so this isn't so much about evaluating the opposition's tactics, but in order to understand your own players, they'd have a 360 camera uh, position on the field, just above the the head position of the quarterback. And so when they called the different moves, um, so the quarterback's in VR for real, feeling like he's on the field with his with his colleagues. And let's say they, they've got 100 different plays they need to memorize. To have every member of the team there, you know, to re-rehearse and re-rehearse, and re-rehearse. Firstly, to reset the play takes ages for people to come back into position. Um, in 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 order to, you know, if, if the quarterback needs like to do a thousand reps before it's internalized, well, they do the first ten themselves and then just use you know imagery or whatever to do the remaining uh, nine thousand nine hundred ninety. Do you know what I mean? So 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 in terms of increasing reps, there is there are data sets to show that those quarterbacks who do this supplementary VR uh, play training, um, they do better because you know the NFL is like incredibly metricized. Everything's measured and analyzed or whatever. Those who use the VR uh, solutions are much better quarterbacks. Like they rise up through the ranks quicker. Their performance gets higher quicker, stays higher for longer. So, for sure, in terms of like increasing the reps and doing so in a situation where you feel genuinely like you're there, rather than you're, you're clearly watching on a screen. I'm putting my fingers so you can see, yeah, watching on a screen. Um, it, it, it works. And, and in anything to do with, I was chatting with a policeman the other day in London about how uh, the potential use for VR in like riot training. Riots don't happen that often. How does it, How does a, a new blood uh, a policeman like just 
manage the natural response to a riot unfolding around them, heart racing, sweating, panicky. If you expose yourself to that environment through VR again and again and again, certainly naval training, army training, they've all used this because you can get used to it in VR. It feels really realistic. And then when you do it for real, you're that much closer to being able to just calmly get on with your job. Nice, man. You, you, you mentioned a study in the book about war where they were doing practice for going out to battle and they were they were like it was like on air raids or something like that and they were way more trigger happy oh, right, right yeah yeah so that's world war one no that was um uh, sonar so people who have to monitor sonar and it was uh, a study where they looked at the likelihood of missing a blip on the sonar screen and if it's in training they, they missed a lot of real blips because they knew deep down in their heart, like the context of the top-down interpretation of those sensory signals was, well, even if I miss one, no one's going to die. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's just a simulation after all. Whereas in the real, it was the other way around. The problem they were trying to address was that in reality, people are so worried that that this, this you know, they might miss a blip that is actually an incoming missile that's going to blow up your submarine or whatever. Um, uh they, they, there would be lots of false alarms. So it's this, when you've got weak sensory signals, did, did a, sorry, I'm putting my hands up where people can see them. Did, did, did a blip sort of come into the range and then go out again very quickly? Uh, it's unthinkable to miss something if you're actually in a submarine and there are actually Russian subs, you know, in the vicinity. Whereas, yeah, it's this disparity between whether the environment is, you know, it's a real one or whether it's a simulated one. Um, and you won't be able to tell the difference in VR. You won't. So, so it will feel as if it's real. Uh, if, if, if you, if you, if you design the environment appropriately, you wouldn't have that problem. It's different from you know things have moved on since World War One. Believe it or not. <laughs> Thanks to you, man, and bringing VR into the game. I, I'm, uh, I'm thinking we'll take a break and come back. And I just want to tell to our audience. We haven't even got started. <laughs> we've been riffing here so much, and we've an hour gone. But I'm aware that, as I said to you, Jack, the the, the people fade away as their attention span goes. So after the break, we're going to come back with five bops, five uh, brain optimization uh, practices or procedures that will help you to get the most of your brain. What? Is the impact of caffeine on the brain? Uh, by the way, it has good impact on the brain. Sleep is important. Stress we'll talk about as well if we can fit that in in there as well. So for now, Jack, for those people who don't get back to us, where can people find you, find out about more about your work, the book, your keynotes, etc.? Yeah, so uh, I've got a website, www.drjack.co.uk. Uh, I've been writing a monthly blog there for the last 11 years and, uh, you know, in those blogs and, and other things, there's links to all the TV work I've done, all the podcasts, all the, um, I used to do my own podcast. Um, <clears throat> and then, uh, yeah, the, you know, talks and, and the like are all mentioned there too. Author of Sort Your Brain Out, Dr. Jack Lewis, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Nice one, man. I hope you're enjoying this extraordinary episode of the brain's beliefs and biases series with dr jack lewis on his book sort your brain out we're going to come back for a part two very very soon it's been an absolute pleasure talking to him i want to thank our sponsor zai before we finish up 
boldly transforming the future of financial services with a suite of embedded products and services enabling businesses to manage multiple payment workflows and transfer funds with ease. Check out Zai at hellozai.com.